to know that because the nation of Israel would always wander. But the nowhere is the extent to God's or the extent of God's mercy more clear than in the proclamation God makes to the whole world through the true suffering servant, our brother, Jesus Christ himself. In the person of Jesus Christ, God's mercy literally triumphs over his just judgment for the whole world. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you for this story that we have to remember to see your mercy, your grace at work, the promise working itself out by your hand in all things. Father, I pray that for your name's sake, for the faith and joy and hope of your people, you would help me to preach the truth and preach it clearly. May I not get in the way of this passage, but explain it. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first five verses of Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So this horribly severe famine that Egypt was experiencing is also affecting, we learn, the land of Canaan. And Jacob, the father of these brothers, hears that there's grain for sale in Egypt, and he makes this very interesting statement to his sons here. Why do you look at one another? So we're getting a hint into the desperation of Jacob and the family, but also the apparent lethargy of the brothers. Apparently, they're indecisive, maybe they're dense, and, and, and seemingly, at least so far, unwilling to do anything about this desperate situation. So the story doesn't start well for the progress of the brothers, their maturation. So far, they've done nothing to help each other in this dire situation that all of them are facing. Reconciliation doesn't come easily anyways. When we the story picks the brothers back up, we are going to start wondering, okay, how's it going to fare for Joseph and his brothers? And the first report we get about them isn't good. So reconciliation is not uh, likely when one of the parties isn't doing anything to help their cause or improve the perception of them, at least to the audience, to the reader. So Jacob suggests they should all go down to Egypt to buy some of this grain. Only Jacob... Um, doesn't want the youngest son, Benjamin, to go with them. He, he's afraid that something bad will happen to him. He's already lost Joseph, and he doesn't want to lose the only other son of his beloved wife, Rachel. The integrity of the ten remaining brothers will now be tested as they go down to Egypt together, along with the rest of the known world, really, to buy grain. Pick it up in verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. That's important. Remember the dreams of Joseph. This will happen three times between here and chapter 45. And largely because of their fearfulness, the brothers are not able to recognize it. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. 
You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. You are spies, Joseph says to them. So Joseph has them. Don't miss that. Joseph has them. They're right in his grasp. He could literally do whatever he wants to them. He could make it horrible for them. He can give life or he can kill with just a word. That's the predicament there. And the brothers appear before him, but they don't recognize that the governor of the land is their brother. Again, it's probably, I would say, the providence of God playing a role in this, but it also isn't too far beyond the realm of possibility that they literally just didn't recognize him. Uh, He was 17 or so when they left him. He's around 30 at this time. By this time also he dresses and looks very much like an Egyptian, which means, by the way, he would no longer have a beard, so he would look totally different. But also think about it. The last person in the world they expected to see as the governor of Egypt was their little brother, Joseph. And again in verse 6, They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground in partial fulfillment of Joseph's dream back in 37, 5 through 8. And while they don't know him, he knows exactly who they are, but he doesn't reveal himself to them. In fact, he treats them harshly, it says. He speaks roughly to them, even accuses them of being spies who come to search out Egypt when it's weak, when it's vulnerable. But Joseph isn't seeking revenge here. He wants to know how the rest of his family is. That's his major concern. Is his father still alive? Is Benjamin well? The brothers, of course, deny that they're spies. They were nothing of the sort, really. They're on the brink of starvation. We are all sons of one man, in verse 11. In other words, we don't represent a government. We're not emissaries here to, you know, seek out the land or spy or do reconnaissance or anything. We're honest family men who are hoping to buy some food. But Joseph presses them. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. To convince Joseph that they aren't spies, the brothers reveal more about their family, which is probably exactly what Joseph was trying to do, get them to reveal some information. They're 12 brothers of the same father in the land of Canaan. Their youngest brother's at home with their father. The other brother is no more. So Joseph learns in that moment, um, not only that Benjamin is still alive, but his brothers think he's dead. Or at least they have no idea whatever happened to him. But Joseph isn't satisfied here. Look at verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So he sets up a test for them to prove they're not spies. He tells them first that he's going to keep all the brothers in Egypt, except one of them, who will be allowed to return to Canaan and bring back their youngest brother. If that one brother brings Benjamin back, then it will corroborate their story. So he puts them in custody for three days, maybe to let them discuss which of the brothers it would be that would go. So we pick it up in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. 
so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So in this three-day span, Joseph comes up with a different plan. He reverses it to say that all the brothers will go except one who will stay behind. It's probably because maybe that plan works out better for the family. More grain can get home. And Joseph knows that his family's in great need of food. And he still knows they'll have to come back to Egypt eventually for more grain. The famine is going to last seven years anyway. But Joseph guarantees they'll return sooner because they'll still have this brother in custody. So it still holds that to prove their innocence and verify they're not spies, they'll have to bring back this other brother of theirs named Benjamin. And now we finally get some insight into the thought process of Joseph's brothers here. Pick it up in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So let's understand what's happening here. They speak... Um, freely in front of the Egyptians because they don't think they can understand their language. Up to this point, we're finding out they've been communicating with Joseph through an interpreter. Not because Joseph could no longer understand Hebrew, however, but because, first of all, anyone from a foreign land speaking to him would have assumed the need for an interpreter present. Secondly, they needed an interpreter to understand Joseph. Dismissing the interpreter would have raised Suspicion, But whatever his reasons were, Joseph knows what they said. And the brothers confessed their guilt over what they had done to Joseph. So up to this point, again, they thought because there's an interpreter present, he can't understand them so they can speak freely and say whatever they want. In fact, they believe what they're experiencing now is divine reckoning for what they did to Joseph. They confess their guilt over what they had done to him. And they really do come clean here amongst each other. They even admit that they were cold and callous about it because, as we find out here, we didn't know back in Genesis 37, Joseph begged them not to do it, cried out to them, but they ignored him in verse 21. They hated him. They hated him. We hear the specific comments of only the oldest, Reuben, in verse 22. Joseph maybe hears for the first time that prior to what happened to him, Reuben had tried to save him, but... Reuben is also a little self-justifying here. He really plays the part of the older brother. He doesn't say we. He says you. Right? I told you guys not to do anything. But then Reuben was just as guilty as they were when it came to covering up what really happened by deceiving Jacob. When they got back, we pick it up in verse 24. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? There are few things worse than the wounds inflicted by family, right? right? 
the world is hard enough. Why is my own blood against me? Why does my own family have to make it so hard? This is the kind of hurt that's caused when the wounds come from family. It's unlike anything else. Joseph makes Simeon stay. The second born, which is interesting. You have to wonder if he wanted to spare Reuben at this point because he's just heard Reuben try to do something again. We need to stress here, Joseph has complete authority over his brothers in this moment. How often in life do you get the chance to hold in your hands with the power of life or death over the person who hurt you, who did this to you? It's very rare. And Joseph is not just in a nice position. Joseph is the governor of all Egypt. Imagine what he could do to his brothers. Imagine how deeply, how carefully, how precise he could enact vengeance against them. He has the opportunity to deal out judgment, just judgment, remember, for what happened to him. But he's not motivated by revenge. For one thing, remember his son's name, Manasseh, meaning that the hardship he had experienced in his father's house no longer had any hold over him. Now the wound has been opened. I don't think he expected to ever see his brothers again or to have the opportunity to hear them confess their guilt and be upset over it. But he also wants to find out more about his family. Really, he places them in a situation then where they'll have to choose. This is what he's doing here. He wants to test them. They'll have to choose between acting in their own self-interests or on behalf of their brothers. So when Joseph sends the other nine back to Egypt, he puts the money that they had paid for the grain with back into their sacks, right? Puts it back in. When one of them later finds that out, they're beside themselves because when they return to Egypt, they might be accused of stealing that grain they were given. So the question for them is, do they save their own skins by abandoning Simeon in Egypt, right? Never coming back and risking the punishment for it, just like they had done to Joseph, abandon him for self-serving purposes. Or will they put themselves in danger by coming back with Benjamin to get their brother? But also remember in verse 18, or what he had said back in verse 18, when Joseph told them this new plan, do this and you will live for I fear God. That would have sounded very strange coming from an Egyptian when they heard it through the interpreter, because that's only something someone in covenant with God would say. So on one level, uh, it means this governor had integrity, right? unlike his brothers who had sold and mistreated him. But again, it also means Joseph is not acting out of revenge in this moment. And when he heard their confession to each other about what they had done to him, he turned around and wept in verse 24. This, this is, if healing will ever come, this is the pathway to it. He heard them confess what they had done. But notice, in verse 28, the guilty ones have no such sense of healing yet. For one thing, They didn't know that it was Joseph, but also they apparently live in a world where the possibility for reconciliation in their lives or of anything different, I should say, anything new, anything unexpected doesn't even exist. All they know is the things they have done in the past deserve God's judgment. That's their only way to interpret anything that's happening to them. They didn't know that the very one against whom they had sinned had looked them in the eye and let them go at this point. For them, it's the only reality for their lives is that we are now paying for what we did to Joseph. So they continue back home in verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, 
The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. They keep saying that. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Now it's really bad. It wasn't just one of them, it was the whole group. So when they get back to Jacob, they tell him everything that happened in Egypt, including the fact that now they have to take Benjamin and go back. I'm sure Jacob is thrilled at this. Thanks so much for telling them that we're back here. But they also find out that all of them have the money they paid for the grain in their sacks, and they're terrified. Because again, they'll be accused of being thieves as well as spies if they go back. We get two responses to this new predicament here at the end of chapter 42. And as far as this chapter goes, the scene will remain unresolved. We don't know yet what is going to happen. Look at verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. There is no way for these men to interpret what is happening to them other than judgment. Do you see that? Everybody thinks they're being punished. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, That's Jacob. My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob responds in the only way he probably could with the information he had, fear and despair. He accuses his sons. So for Jacob, that wound is never healed. He accuses his sons of being the reason why he lost Joseph and now Simeon. And he says they would also be to blame if he were to lose Benjamin. What a dysfunctional family. It's just a mess of pain and hurt and regret and despair. This isn't bringing anyone closer together. And Jacob seems like he's abandoning Simeon to the same fate as Joseph when he says of him what he had said of Joseph, that he is no more in verse 36. It's done. There's nothing we can do. The second response comes from Reuben, the oldest, who is always failing to lead. He wants to assure his father that he can take care of Benjamin if they go back to Egypt, but he doesn't really relieve Jacob's anxiety when he says, and if I don't, you can kill my two sons for my failure. Now, there are whispers of substitution here, no mistake, but this is not noble. Okay, first of all, he didn't offer up himself. He offered up his boys. Right? If You know what? If I fail at this, Dad, you should kill my two sons. What? What is the deal here? Right, that, that wouldn't help anything. Do you really think what would make Joseph or Jacob feel better is to kill his two grandsons now? Wouldn't help anything. It would just make things harder for the family. The point being, human beings aren't that good at justice. We just aren't. We, we, we just aren't. But in the background here in all this is the growing reality that apparently 
No one is living in light of the promise anymore. No one believes the promise that God had made to their ancestor Abraham. Life has made that all but impossible. You see, over time, apparently, in the midst of their struggle for survival due to this this famine, and their struggle to undo the deeds of the past, they've forgotten that God had made a promise for their future. Remember? And that he would allow nothing to ultimately undo that. They should be clinging to that. They should still believe it, but they don't. And so there's only despair at the end of 42. There's only desperation. What do we make of that tonight as we read this chapter? These unresolved chapters are always strange. I would say, first of all, that reconciliation apparently is difficult business, beloved. It's so messy to try to truly reconcile. Most of the time when there's been genuine hurt, if there's a reconciliation reached, it's, it's normally some kind of standoff. Maybe a, a, maybe a, a peaceful one, not a violent one, but normally if, if you've created deep hurt on somebody, the best you can get is, is just you're not fighting anymore. You know, maybe there's just a, an agreement to just live and let live and you do your thing and I'll do mine. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. You let me be. I'll leave you be. And so it's this kind of stalemate. You know, do all the parties feel the appropriate amount of guilt and responsibility, first of all? Has everyone said the necessary apologies? Has everyone else accepted those apologies? Will this be forgotten? Can we move forward? Or will it always hang like a shadow over us? And if you pull back from all that, whether it's a little thing or a big thing, this is what sin does. This is what the curse has caused. It corrupts everything. We even hurt the ones we love the most. We do things that are irreconcilable, at least on paper. Obviously, again, there's more to the story. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Most of us know how this goes. But tonight, in chapter 42, as we look at this first reunion, let's consider how difficult Genuine reconciliation is so that you and I can get a clearer picture of just what it is exactly that Jesus Christ has actually done for us. What if tonight, beloved, what if the gospel means that our sins have really been forgiven? What if it means that we are really accepted by God and that God holds not the slightest hint of a grudge against us for anything we did that, remember, nailed his son to a cross? We tend, and this is not a, this is not a critical statement. I'm trying to observe myself, our church, our just people, we tend to wallow in the idea that there's only guilt. It's, it's like it motivates us. You know, that the only reality is guilt. Just like Joseph's brothers in verse 22 and verse 28. Even though we're all sitting here tonight, believers, those of us who are believers, which I assume is for the most part everyone here, none of us have been condemned. Look, even if you're not believing, you're alive. 
your life. You, you, you experience good. Yes, you experience bad in life, but we also experience very good things. And so rather than a life of joy and peace because we've truly been made right with God, even Christians can live this neurotic life of guilt and fear trying to desperately prove to God that we're sorry through our good works, trying to undo what we've done in the past, hoping that He won't pull the rug out from under us when all is said and done. Right? When we stand before Him finally. Not just the governor of Egypt, but of the entire universe. Could this be the cause of the ongoing turmoil and lack of reconciliation with anyone in our lives? We refuse to really believe that Jesus has reconciled us to God, that He holds us at a distance with this insurmountable grudge. We, we, we almost can't believe it's not like that. Right? Cause, cause we know when we get hurt, it's very hard to forgive and we're not God. And just the amount of sin that is piled up and rebellion and hurt against God, it's very hard to believe that we're forgiven. And so what happens is, is that we begin to live like or we can't believe that God would want to give us anything really but justice. We we believe what the scripture says, that God forgives those who confess their sins. We believe that. that I think the trouble comes, like in the story of the prodigal son, that yeah, but is there really a feast? Is he really happy that we're, because we're used to reconciliation that's really just kind of legal. Right or forensic? You say you're sorry. Okay. Don't. I love it when people say, uh, "I forgive you, but I won't forget." Well, then you, okay, you haven't forgiven, right? And, and look, I, look, I'm not. Again, that's not to like downplay hurt that you that you've had happen to you. Like it's easy to let it go or forget, or that um, you know, now you're in trouble because you, you just, you know, you actually don't forgive. But I mean, let's let's be honest. Let's be honest tonight with each other. It's Sunday night. It's quiet. It's kind of dark. Nobody else is looking, right? Forgiveness is really hard. So reconciliation is all but impossible, right? Again, again, I'm, I'm, I want us to see it through the lens of Christ. I don't want you to, to be condemned, feel condemned by this. But for the most part, true forgiveness that brings actual reconciliation. You can't sit down and have a wonderful dinner with all your enemies that have hurt you, right? Very rarely can that happen and it be genuine. I think that's the curse. I, I, I think it's impossible. So just parenthetically, when you hear Jesus say, if you don't forgive your brother and I won't forgive you, what do you do when you hear that? You run to Jesus and say, forgive me. I can't forgive. You have to help me. Right? So stay desperate. Run to Jesus. Right? Don't run to Jesus. Don't run away from him. Run to him. Be honest. But it's hard to believe that we're forgiven. We, we can't believe that God would want to give us anything but justice. He has to forgive us now because he said he would. But what if he wants to? What if he wants to? What if he's really not mad at you anymore? What if that's the case? Because Jesus did what Reuben could not. You ever thought about that? Jesus didn't go to the Father and offer us up if he failed. The mission was to offer himself up, to rescue us. Because it was you and I. It was you and I. It was our sin who robbed God 
of his most precious son. Well, what happens when our future is in the hands of the brother we helped kill? What then? If we would not have sinned, remember this, Jesus would not have died in the providence of God. And when the day of reckoning finally comes, when it gets found out what is in our sacks, what can we prove? To whom can we appeal? Because all the accusations against us will be true. We're that guilty, that deserving of condemnation. So what will we do? Well, beloved, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay tonight. Nobody in here is not actually guilty. We did everything we've been accused of by God. But this was always the plan. That salvation would be this good was the promise God made before the ages began. Remember, Jesus was the brother put in custody for three days and three nights while his blood paid the pardon for our sin. Jesus was the brother who offered himself up to save the one lost in captivity. Jesus was the brother who would heal the whole family with his grace. In the person of Jesus Christ, God's mercy literally triumphs over his just judgment for sinners all over the world. The long road back to our home with God was longer than any of us could ever walk. So how in the world did we get home? We aren't home because we did all the things necessary to walk it. We're home tonight because Jesus, the brother we killed, carried us home. That's why. It's that good. It's that true. It's that real. The Bible is one long story of the long road back to a garden we were made for. Because you notice the Bible begins and ends in a garden. And the means by which God provides that way home. And it doesn't have anything to do with our work or our feelings, but everything to do with a plan to provide the seed God promised the moment we fell. That's how long the promise has been in operation. Remember, the minute we fell. God didn't even wait to assure us that everything would be okay. He was there with the promise the second we rebelled. So when you fear that you are not reconciled, when you fear that not enough has been done, that what Jesus did has not made everything all right, go back to the book of Genesis. Go all the way back to the garden and ask yourself, what did God commit himself to for me before I was even born? God knew exactly what he was forgiving when he sent his son. That's why Jesus came to do it and not anybody else. If we were standing here tonight hoping that enough bulls and goats had been killed to cover what we did, we'd be in a world of hurt. Now, we live like that's the case, don't we? We live like we just, like we're, we're, notice the way often that we pray. Just the tone of our prayers. We're talking to God like he doesn't really want to listen. He doesn't, you have to try to bend him down. Please come and listen to me. He's your father. He's listening to you. 
God committed himself to fixing this and healing it before you and I were ever born. To bring us back home, but not by making us walk, right? Right? The, the story of Joseph is showing you how difficult reconciliation is. Isn't it amazing that when God comes to forgive, there's no test, right? There's no like, well, if you're really sorry, go and do this and go and do this. And then we'll see. We'll see if you, do you notice that? That's not what happens in Christ. That's not what happens in Christ. What the Bible's doing is being honest about how difficult reconciliation actually is. And then Jesus comes along and just does the whole work and pays for all of it. To the extent that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ Jesus is Lord and is risen from the dead, you know what happens to you? You're saved. Period. End of story. You say, well, it can't. Oh, my goodness, beloved. That's Listen, one of these days I'll get the guts to preach the sermon, a sermon on the thief on the cross. Because I think, my opinion is, if I can say such a thing, he's there as the picture of how great salvation actually is. I think that's his purpose in the Bible. That it really is, you mean to tell me that if I, in my last breath, cry out for God to forgive me, and I'm Osama bin Laden or something, that I get forgiven? Oh, that's exactly what it means. You say, how? You see, we think, well, that's not fair. No, 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 no. Somebody has been punished for everything that you've done. You understand that? It's, it's not, again, I, justice isn't hanging out there somewhere in the universe waiting to be satisfied. That's what the cross did. It is not that God takes sin lightly. He is holy. He is filled with wrath and vengeance, angry with the wicked every day. The cross, grace does not mean God doesn't take sin seriously. Grace means what Jesus did is so great, it addresses how horrible sin is once and for all, and nothing else needs to be done. Nobody else's blood needs to be spilled. It's finished. Right now, if you're talking about earth and people and relationships, yeah, Joseph has the right to say, oh, we're not, you know what, I'm not going to show you who I am and give you the chance to say sorry. You're going to show me. You guys ruined my life. God made it great. But you ruined my life. You took me from my family. It's difficult. It's hard. It's ugly. It's nasty. Imagine looking each other in the eye once everything's revealed. All right, imagine how humiliated the brothers will feel. How sorry they'd feel again. How, I mean, it's just reconciliation is so dirty. It's just so difficult is what I mean by that. And then Jesus just makes it so Final and simple and real. Beloved, it's no small thing that at least the symbol of that is a meal. The bread and the cup. Just come and sit down and eat. I've taken care of everything. Just sit down, enjoy the meal, and have life. Right, I mean, you figure with your worst enemies, the people that have hurt you the most, that you've hurt the most, the one thing you certainly couldn't do, even if you could walk by each other in Walmart without fighting, the last thing in the world you could do is sit down for a nice dinner together and enjoy it. And that's eternity. It's a feast. It's a feast. In that, find your rest tonight, beloved. Accept the truth that His grace is just 
bigger than your sin. And that's just the way it is. Right? That's just the way it is. That's how great Jesus is. That's how amazing. That's how powerful his blood. Six hours of suffering on a tree, a night of groaning and pain and mockery and spitting and humiliation. And it's done. Because God counts sin so cheap it only takes a couple hours? No. Because of the blood of the one being punished. That was Jesus. That was our brother coming right in. You say, well, how is Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus is the second Adam. He comes in the image of God. He, he's one of us now. That was our brother that we threw up on that cross and spit on and hung. And when you come home, God doesn't hold you at arm's length because the reconciliation isn't really... Like, you're forgiven, but you can't come in the house. I'm, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. No, no, no. That's our justice. And I understand on some degree. But that's our justice. God's justice is to take everything you've ever done. All of it. All of it. And everything you're doing now, and will do, and chuck it into the sea of what? Forgetfulness. How does God forget? Well, he just says, look, I'm not going to hold that over you anymore. Right? Manasseh. (laughs) God's grace is bigger than your sin, beloved. Therefore, reconciliation is real and true. Even though the road back home is long, but it has been walked by Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us who believe. We thank you, Father, for his willingness to redeem us, his willingness to pay the price, his willingness to make reconciliation not just possible, but to secure it. And so, Lord, I pray that as your church tonight, each and every person in our church would believe this and hold it dearly in their hearts. And we ask and pray for these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.